From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. From Sunday, November 6th to Friday, November 18th, heads of states, ministers, and negotiators, along with climate activists and civil society representatives, will meet in the Egyptian coastal city of Sharm el-Sheikh for the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, also known as COP27. With the conference fast approaching, Egyptian authorities have been putting their best foot forward to present a respectable image of the current regime, which, despite its bleak human rights record, would have the world believe that its treatment of plants and animals exceed the way it treats its own citizens. In order to keep a large section of uh, the political circles in prisons on bogus charges in never-ending pre-trial detention, and although the ceiling for the pre-trial detention is only two years, but people are released after two years just on paper, and then they are charged with new charges. So they complete the cycle of another two years. We have people who have been in prison for like over nine years without being convicted because they are on this journey of never-ending pre-trial detention. Rights groups estimate Egypt now holds some 60,000 political prisoners, including Ala Abdel Fattah, a British-Egyptian writer and democracy activist who has been in prison for more than nine years. According to The Guardian, Allah has been on hunger strike for well over 200 days. Since last May, he has been limiting himself to 100 calories a day, a teaspoon of honey, and a bit of milk to keep him alive. But as of November 2nd, he has returned to fully refusing food. Khalil Bendib, spoke with Berlin-based exiled journalist and democracy activist Hossam El-Hamalawi about Egypt's horrific human rights and environmental record since the 2013 coup. Is the Sinai Peninsula such a suitable venue for a worldwide meeting on climate change? Hossam, the International COP27 climate conference is scheduled to take place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt next week. Speaking of climate, what about the political climate in Egypt? The Egyptian junta has made a show recently of releasing some political prisoners ahead of the conference. Tell us more about what's going on on that score. The political climate in Egypt is so similar to the situation of its environmental climate, to be honest. I mean, both are uh, down the drains. Recently, the regime has managed to score some PR points internationally by releasing a number of prisoners, including some high-profile prisoners, including my comrade uh, Haytham Mohammedin and my comrade Sham Fouad. Both are veteran socialist activists and uh, labor organizers. Since 2013, Sisi's crackdown on dissent has been largely done within the framework of the law, actually. It is a repressive law, obviously, that he and the rest of the generals, in collaboration with counter-revolutionary judges, have drafted 
but usually most of the moves by the state against dissent is either preceded or it's backed immediately by legislation. And one of those legislations that we have been paying a very dear price in Egypt because of it is the one uh, regarding pre-trial detention. Many of the Egyptian political prisoners at the moment, they are not convicted, but at the same time, it's not an arbitrary detention because there is this gray zone that the regime has exploited in order to keep a large section of uh, the political circles in prisons on bogus charges in never-ending pre-trial detention. And although the ceiling for the pre-trial detention is only two years, but people are released after two years just on paper and then they are charged with new charges. So they complete the cycle of another two years. We have people, uh, Khalil, who have been in prison for like over nine years without being convicted because they are on this journey of never-ending pre-trial detention. But this also means that they are hostages, that the regime can release and bargain either with local actors or with international donors like in the industrial West. So what happened recently is simply that the regime grabbed some international praise just because there is a handful of high-profile detainees that he has been keeping as hostages in his prisons have been released. But this does not negate the fact that there are still thousands, both in pretrial detention and convicted in bogus politicized cases, where, I mean, some estimates would go up to 60,000, while other estimates would give you something around like 20,000. And if you ask the regime officials, they will tell you we have zero uh, political prisoners. Yes, of but course. Then, but then they announce that they have released the political prisoners. <laughs> so, so where did that come from? We don't have uh, any, and, we, and we're going to release them anyway. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very genius plan. But if you look at the bigger picture, Khalil, you will not find really much has changed in terms of dissent. As Egypt, as you stated earlier, is about to host the COP27 next week, already yesterday, at least 65 people have been ordered to remain in police custody for 15 days because they, I mean, according to the government, they issued calls online for protests to take place in Egypt on the 11th of November. The security situation, according to many friends and sources on the ground in Cairo, in Cairo and in the urban center, security has been highly stepped up. People are stopped randomly in the squares, sometimes taken for investigation. In Egypt, the police is so intrusive and brutal, so they force you to open your mobile phone just randomly. You know, I mean, any cop can do that on the streets. Just checking, you know, I mean, people's mobile phones and if they find any posters or any messages on WhatsApp, 
that like either mocks the president or calls for protests, they are taken immediately. When it comes to the bigger picture, political parties, including those that the regime has claimed recently that it is starting with a national dialogue with the opposition and we're going to talk about the problems, blah, blah, blah. Nothing really has happened on the ground in terms of opening up a political space for these even legal parties uh, to organize on the ground. I'm not even talking here about like radical leftists or radical Islamists. I'm talking about the legal mainstream political parties in Egypt. So overall, even despite all of the PR propaganda that the regime has tried to do, there isn't really much has changed. But Khalil, the only thing that has changed, I would argue, in the past period is that the economic crisis has started to hit the country really bad, so bad that the regime has to acknowledge it and has to acknowledge that there is something wrong. Since 2013, CC has been taking loans left and right, either from El Khalid, you know, from the Gulf countries, or from international donors and from the IMF and any institution, any state that's willing to uh, give loans or funds, you know, CC was like taking it. At the moment, we have the biggest foreign debt in the history of the country, averaging or reaching up to uh, 120 billions. And much of this debt is not long term. This is what's called like hot money. But, you know, this is like a long story to, to delve into at the moment. But what this translates into is that the regime has to pay the interests and the payback on these debts pretty soon on the short term. And the Gulf has signaled to Sisi that, you know, enough is enough. We're not just like walking bankers. We cannot keep bailing you out while you are doing all of these mega white elephant projects everywhere. You need to stop and we will not continue supporting you like we used to do. Sisi has always been under the belief that Egypt is too big to fail that no matter what he does, no one can afford a failed state in Egypt or a new revolution in Egypt. And by this, I mean the Gulf and I mean the international, the industrial Western states. No one wants Egypt to fail and it's too big to fail. So no matter how much he squanders money, he is always assured that he will get money so as to continue his fight on terror, so as to continue keeping his uh, central state functioning and to keep all of those brown and black people from reaching the shores of southern Europe. But Financial Times just had a, had a long read on Egypt yesterday. And they are actually, there are voices that's challenging this and it's saying that you shouldn't really take it uh, for granted. Actually, the Gulf countries can live with some level of failure in Egypt that would at least see Sisi going out of the picture. It's the second yeah. largest uh, debt in the world, right after Argentina. Egypt is exactly. so indebted. 
and it's had four or five IMF loans since 2016. Yes, the volume of our external loans has reached uh, roughly like 120 billion at the moment. So this is a catastrophe and people sometimes are drawing parallels between what Sisi is doing with the debts and what the Khedive Ismail back in the 19th century did with the debts in Egypt, although of course it was a different experience, and him getting Egypt into so much debts was the door through which the colonial powers entered the country and occupied it, namely uh, Britain. So there are now like talk that's circulating about Saudi Arabia and the Emirates buying assets from the uh, Egyptian state. They are taking over banks, uh, companies. So there is this uh, situation. And after this loan, the pound was further devalued. So just to give your listeners like an idea, when Sisi carried out his coup, Back in 2013, the dollar was roughly anywhere between six and eight Egyptian pounds. Now, the dollar is roughly like 24 Egyptian pounds. So the pound has lost so much of its value. And this means that, you know, the prices are going up and people cannot afford with their current salaries buying their basic uh, subsidies. So you have roughly now like two thirds of the country who are struggling around the poverty line and the situation seems it's going to get worse. Now, will this translate itself into political action in the streets or not? Here is like something to consider. I disagree with those who keep on putting all of these trending hashtags via bots, because that's what the Egyptian, usually Islamist exiles do. They make all of these semi-spontaneous calls online, thinking that they can replicate what happened on the 25th of January 2011, uh, simply by a trending hashtag or by a trending Facebook post. But... What usually happens on these occasions is that the government goes in and it arrests basically everyone from the veteran activist community who are not necessarily calling for these protests. So at the moment, most of the organizations in Egypt have been contained or crushed. Most of the activist community is under surveillance. You don't have the splits within the security and military establishment that existed under Mubarak that would create for you a room to maneuver and start organizing on the margin. Because, you know, this is something that has been widely acknowledged, not just by hardcore revolutionaries like Lenin, but even like any mainstream political scientist today. Splits within your ruling regime splits within your ruling class always encourages dissent from below. It opens the door for dissent from below. But up until now, and forget about the sensationalist reports that usually the Qatari-backed media talks about, our security services or our security establishment is kind of united. 
because you know every two or three days uh, you always get a report either in Arab al-Jadid or any of these Qatari satellites about, uh, you know, there is competition between the security services and they are in wars between them. This was in the past, but one of the consequences of the coup is that the military junta under the leadership of Sisi managed to unify that security sector. It didn't come in one night. It didn't come even in one year. It took some time. But they are now fully under Sisi's control and they are united with not the previous aims of the security establishment under Mubarak and Sadat and Gamal Abdel Nasser, where the security services essentially were about coup proofing, were about protecting the regime from coups. Now, their main focus is not coup proofing as much as we will not see another 2011 ever again. Some historians, like my friend and someone whom I really respect a lot, Dr. Khaled Fahmi, uh, who is a historian of Egypt in the 19th century, and he also uh, has a particular interest in the Egyptian military and its history. And for him, I interviewed him recently, and one thing that kept ringing in my head that he said was that before 2011, our ruling elites never really took us seriously. Yes, they knew that, you know, some strife can happen here, maybe some riots can happen there, but they never really took the street seriously. They never thought that these people are capable of a revolution until 2011 happened. And it took them by sheer surprise, they never believed that it was ever possible to happen. But now their creed, their principal aim is to ensure this nightmare of 2011, when the gallows were like hanging and playing in front of the eyes of our generals and our ruling elites, these scenes will never happen again. So. In terms of dissent, once people start taking to the streets, you cannot really expect an immediate reactive surprise on behalf of the military or the security services because they are very alert. And that's what now their main concern. And CDC has been showering these institutions with so much economic privileges that they feel that they are in an existential fight in order to keep the population down. So if a revolt starts again, you will not get the kind of mutinies that we saw in January and February and on other occasions later. In 2011. Uh, 2011, yeah. Of conscripts joining the revolt or officers sympathizing with the... I mean, there will definitely be cases like this, but overall, these institutions of coercion are right now very in a very cohesive status that it will be a bloodshed for sure. CC's project ideologically has failed. I mean, you don't have the same moral panic and fear psychosis that was engulfing society in 2013 and for a couple of more years in the name of fighting terrorism, 
And, you know, in such atmosphere, that's when you find also fascist tendencies flourish because people are willing to give up their liberties for the sake of stability and for the sake of someone who is a Bonapartist and will rule society with an iron fist to bring about stability. There has been numerous cases in the history of counter-revolutions of cases like these. But the economic pinch, in addition to the the level, the high level of repression that no one believed it was possible to reach, has lost him so much support now in the population. Even among the big bourgeoisie, I assure you, there are sections of the big bourgeoisie who are unhappy with the current situation because the military is competing with them in the economic sphere. In case your listeners didn't know, the military is one of the biggest capitalists in Egypt, actually. They have their economic firms that they run directly using conscript labor, uh, which is almost labor for free. And they are exempted from taxes, exempted from tariffs, and they are given so much patronage by the state that even with liberal market economics uh, standards, it's not a free competition. I mean, they have an advantage. All of these army companies, they are squeezing private capital actually out from some sectors. That was my Um, next question. Does this cohesion that you're describing within the military have to do with all these economic advantages that they've been accruing? It has to do largely with this. I mean, there is definitely more than one reason for this current uh, state of cohesion. Because, you know, as we say in Arabic, Mm. you know, like the current status cannot stay forever. Mm. Things always change. So as you can see, Arabic culture is uh, pretty dialectical, you know? Yes. <laughs> Given this, this bleak picture you're painting for us, of all countries to hold the COP27, why Egypt? How is the country affected by global warming and what efforts has it made to alleviate uh, the effects of uh, global warming? In terms of being on the receiving end of the consequences of climate change, there is no question that Egypt and the global south in general will be among the first countries to pay the price for uh, the crimes of global capitalism. In the span of 50 years, there is talk about uh, the Nile Delta having sections of it beneath uh, the Mediterranean, and so does Alexandria. We see this in the weather storms in Egypt. We see it in the unbelievable heat waves that we are getting. But the problem is, how is the government tackling uh, these environmental issues in general? You know, there have been environmental fights in the country, and some of them even scored some victories. And this is under Mubarak. For example, among the most famous cases, was the Agrium company in Damietta, where the local residents have been uh, fighting this polluting company and they didn't want them to uh, operate a plant in their area. It was a long fight, but they've managed to stop the project. There have been 
many protests before 2011 and after 2011 in the countryside and in the urban centers uh, outside Cairo and Alexandria specifically, in the Nile Delta and elsewhere, where uh, local residents have been protesting over either the situation of the water, the situation of sanitation, the situation of uh, their infrastructure, the situation of the roads or the pollution of neighboring factories that were killing their plants. I mean, there were always fights around this, but the government already before 2011 was so much dismissive uh, of the people's demands. And obviously after 2013, I mean, dissent of any sort or any kind is not allowed. So this is always faced with with crackdowns. Now, if you look specifically at COP27, I mean, it shows you that probably our planet is not going to be saved via these conferences, via these UN conferences. Because look at how farcical uh, the whole situation is. It's so farce that it amounts to a circus. First, you have Coca-Cola is the main sponsor uh, of, <laughs> that, of that conference. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is like bringing, you know, Adolf Hitler to, you know, sponsor some human rights convention. You know? I mean, the fox, are you kidding me? The fox in charge of the chicken coop. <laughs> exactly. So this is number one. Number two, it's the conference is being held in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, which is the Red Sea Las Vegas. It is uh, a Red Sea resort mainly designed for international tourists and middle-class and upper-middle-class and upper-class Egyptians. If people from the Nile Valley need to go to Sinai, they have to cross the Suez Canal. Now, when you are crossing, you are vetted by security who stop all the cars and they check you out. And if you don't look rich enough so as to be a tourist, they don't allow you access into Sinai if you're Egyptian. You know, yeah. and if you don't look rich, you have to present either a work permit or a reservation somewhere in a hotel or else you cannot enter Sinai. Sharm el-Sheikh in specific and even more ironically, the main conference, and I didn't see this really highlighted in the international press, but the main conference center where COP27 is going to be held will take place in a conference center that is officially owned by the General Intelligence Service, by our Mukhabarat. Already over TV, the uh, governor of South Sinai, who is in charge of Sharm el-Sheikh, and who is, you know, as always, a retired major general, who is close to the regime in Cairo. And he's actually, he is uh, related by marriage to Sisi's families. He was bragging that... All the cabs in in Sharm el-Sheikh will be supplied with CCTV cameras. I mean, he was like marketing this as like, oh, we're keeping people safe. But obviously, it's to track everyone. Already, an Indian activist was picked up by the police yesterday in, in Cairo while he was planning on walking to Sharm el-Sheikh. And more than 65 people have been uh, arrested, as I said earlier, because they were accused that they were trying to instigate uh, protests during the conference time. 
and it's so surreal. This is happening only few kilometers away from St. Catherine's. And that's when you have a very old monastery over a thousand years old. And Sisi is engaged in environmental destruction there and gentrification uh, projects in order to turn the area into a more touristic area. If you go up north of Sharm el-Sheikh by 400 kilometers, you will find the ruins of the city of Rafah that was once a blooming town on the borders with Gaza. But the Egyptian military under Sisi's leadership demolished the entire town and forcefully uh, evicted all of its residents. Thousands of families were evicted from there in the name of uh, fighting terrorism. And North Sinai has been uh, hell for the local residents because on the one hand, you did have an insurgency, but this insurgency was inflamed by the coup in the first place, although it has definitely much older roots. But the situation never really got that bad except after the coup and and because of the heavy-handed policies of the Egyptian military that made sections of the local population at the end of the day sympathize with the militants because they felt that anything would be better than what we're seeing from Sisi's army. Some people were saying that even under Israel, the Israeli occupation, these brutalities were not happening on such a scale. Now, of course, I mean, at the end of the day, you and I know that Egypt and Israel are coordinating this war on terror in Sinai. And Israeli drones have been active in targeting the local population with the permission of Sisi in 2015 and 2016. And this has been exposed already by the New York Times and by Bloomberg. So it is completely farcical to have this conference in Egypt. And by the way, after this conference is over, the next one is going to take place in the UAE. Yeah, I mean, to make a complete mockery out of it. (laughs) So it is a PR move by the state, basically, to host such international conferences whose slogans and aims are not related even remotely to the daily policies that they uh, execute in their countries. And that's Berlin-based exiled journalist and democracy activist Hussam al-Hamalawi speaking with Khalil Bendib about Egypt's horrific human rights and environmental record since the 2013 coup. From November 6th to the 18th, Egypt will host the UN Climate Summit, the 27th Conference of the Parties, COP27, in Sharm el-Sheikh. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. According to the environment minister, Khaled Fahmi, 
Dust is considered the main problem in Egypt's air, as most of the country's nature is desert. Quote, he says, uh, dusty winds and the scarcity of rains are the main factors contributing to the increased air pollutions rate in Egypt, he said, end of quote. The Egyptian uh, Ministry of Environment has also put forth a prominent strategy for Egypt to reduce air pollution uh, rate by 50% in 2023, which is next year. That's what they announced on June 4th. Is this achievable? And if so, how, how would it be achievable? There is no way that this can ever happen because on the ground, and this is not a secret, the government has been waging war on greenery in Cairo and in the other urban centers in Egypt. Literally, maybe your listeners don't know, but if they just do a quick search over Facebook, you will find tons of groups that are now fighting to save whatever trees that are left in the cities. Methodically, all the local authorities in all the urban centers, without any exaggeration, Khalil, have been cutting down trees, either in the name of security, because they claim that this allows terrorists to put bombs in trees. Oh, I'm not joking. This has been put forward. And either they say that we cannot keep on the maintenance cost of like watering those trees, or they cut them down part of widening roads because the priority are just for roads and for cars. And that's the policy of a country that's hosting the UN conference to fight Uh, climate change. It is too farcical that it would not even fly in a parody. The Minister of Environment says it's working on reducing the car's exhaust through replacing old cars with electric ones. New buses are expected to be released soon with several modifications to control air pollution. What's your comment on that? I mean, I really wish them luck, but I mean, as an Egyptian, I know, of course, that everything they do is contrary to what policies that they are declaring to you and that you've just read out. The public transport system in Egypt, it has collapsed because the government has taken its hands off that sector since the 1990s. So most of the transportation in Egypt uh, at the moment is being conducted privately or by like these small microbuses and tuk-tuks, as we say in Egypt, they will get probably five or six buses that they have received from some European donor. And, you know, the minister will come and he will like, you know, cut the red ribbon and everyone will be clapping. And these images will be aired on Egyptian TV and foreign correspondents will be uh, invited. And then you will find, you know, I mean, articles talking about how Egypt is modernizing this sector by introducing, you know, electric buses. But the reality on the ground, the Egyptian citizen does not feel any sort of improvement in that regards. Egypt has plenty of sun, as does most of the Middle East and North Africa region. Does it have a strategy to take advantage of that geographical position to produce clean solar energy? There are uh, some private initiatives. I mean, I personally know some Egyptian investor who actually launched a company uh, trying to 
uh, harvest this. So there are these private initiatives. The state also has erected, you know, some solar panels here and there. But overall, Khalil, there isn't a national strategy to harvest such power and to turn away from fossil fuel. These things in the mentality of the Egyptian state, it's a luxury that we don't have in Egypt. We can't think about these things, you know, I mean, at the moment. The situation on the ground is contrary to whatever environment ministers or other environment officials would declare. Over the past decade or so, uh, Egypt, which depends entirely on the natural blessings of the Nile, has had with Ethiopia some negotiations over that country's plans to divert some of the waters that are a lifeline to Egypt. What is the current situation of those negotiations between Ethiopia and Egypt? Although the regime did announce previously uh, on a number of occasions that they have managed to conclude a deal or they managed to avert a crisis, the situation uh, again on the ground and in reality is different. The Ethiopians managed in the end eventually to build this dam and to fill it and they went ahead without making any deals either with Egypt or with Sudan, although initially they had waived, you know, this card to the Sudanese that, you know, we will give you uh, cheap electricity if you support uh, our right to build this dam. The situation on the ground is different. You know, they build the dam at the end of the day. Now, maybe I have different views regarding this issue, different from the rest of the Egyptian uh, dissident community. The original agreement that was struck between Egypt and the Nile Basin countries has been drafted during the colonial era. And more or less, Egypt had always had the upper hand, more or less in negotiations, for many reasons, you know, that that has to do with the political weight uh, of the country. So there are African countries who are complaining that Egypt has the lion share even when it is it's the biggest population, nearly 100 million or like 102 or 6 million in that range. So a third way should have been adopted. I'm not talking about like the Egyptian position that was against building the dam. And I'm not talking about Ethiopians who say like to everyone, go to hell, we will build our own dam. But some agreement, some form of cooperation should have been reached between these countries in order to regulate the water resources of the Nile in such very difficult times where climate change is causing drought and it's causing changes regarding the share of every African in the water resources on the continent. So if you ask me what's the situation now, the situation now is basically that the Ethiopians are, I mean, have built their dam. And they did have actually Emirati support, which raised so many eyebrows uh, in Egypt. So why would they be in favor? Because they are um, a local or they are a regional colonial state. And they have their own interests in Africa. And that includes getting cheap land where 
they can have their own farms that serve the local market back in the UAE. So they turn many of the richest and most fertile uh, lands in Sudan and Ethiopia and elsewhere into places where, you know, their cattle can be herded, into farms that serve their own uh, local needs, but not the needs of, you know, the population where these farms are located. The Emiratis are playing and punching above their weight really everywhere, from supporting coups, from supporting counter-revolutions. And the war in Yemen, you're right, they're, they have their fingers everywhere. They've made uh, an alliance with Israel. Which yes, and we call them the Israel of the Arab world now. As you were alluding to uh, previously, much of the environmental struggles Egypt as well as the entire region suffers from is a result of the gross negligence and exploitation of the laissez-faire capitalist uh, global north. And as a consequence, many countries have been pushing the rich countries to help subsidize at least ecological efforts in the global south, which is easier said than done, of course. But that would certainly help address the imbalance born out of hyper capitalism, colonialism, and exploitation on a planetary scale. Where does Egypt, given its uh, geopolitical situation, where does Egypt come down on this question of global environmental justice and potential uh, restitution? There have been uh, statements by Egyptian officials, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think even Sisi himself referred to this, about the need of the global north to take responsibility and to help the global south in overcoming the consequences of uh, climate change, whom he accused, you know, rightfully, that the global north has the lion's share in causing. But the problem, Khalil, of that discourse, when it comes at least from the state, is that we all know that this is just another way where undemocratic, dictatorial, military dictatorships, uh, dictatorial regimes can extort money from the West. And it's money that we as Egyptian citizens were not going to see and were not going to benefit from in, in any ways. This is a historical problem when it comes to international aid that is based on the current state system. So while definitely the global north should be held accountable, I think that the ones who should really play the central role in this fight are the people of the global north themselves and activists who are based there to hold their governments uh, accountable. Because at the end of the day, they, they too will suffer. It's not only the global south will suffer. And I am saying this not in a hypothetical sense, but in a concrete sense, meaning that I've been seeing so many movements in the West, and they are genuine grassroots movements and well-meaning activists and networks and politicians and parliamentarians whom I know on a personal basis that they are involved in street campaigns, who are carrying the flag of this fight and who are trying to force their governments in order to change the policies uh, that they are adopting and destroying the planet with. 
So while the global south has the right to protest the global north, we should not fall into the trap of having another form of nationalism, meaning that you cannot lump Sisi and the Egyptian citizens in one boat and in one basket under the name of the global south. So when you say the global south, I mean, do you mean rich, corrupt military dictators and generals? who run the states in the global south usually? Or do you mean environmental campaigners, citizens, the people, and non-governmental actors? So you have to be a little bit specific and very careful with this discourse, in my view. Good point. Earlier, we were talking about Egypt's dependency on wheat. It's one of the, it is the largest wheat important in the world. What is it, 100 million people in Egypt are nearing that? They're all they're strong wheat eaters, as most of North Africa is. What effect has the war in Ukraine had on the average Egyptian in a country where, as you were saying, 60% of the population are either poor or vulnerable to price shocks? It's been catastrophic, uh, Khalil. The disrupt in the supply chain when it comes to wheat, has had its impact in terms of shortages that we've been seeing, in addition to what I call the disguised price increases. Meaning, instead of uh, increasing the price of bread, you will actually decrease the size of the loaf. It's shrinkflation. There's a term for that, shrinkflation. Oh, I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's being practiced here as well, in the global north as well. Yes. I I will steal that expression, you know, but but that's exactly what has been happening uh, in Egypt. So you did get shortages, you did get price increases, and you did get, like, you know, the shrinkages in the size of the bread. But at the same time, the government frantically even sent in the army in order to start baking bread to make sure that the market doesn't completely uh, collapse. They remember the bread riots and the Sadat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just in the case uh, your listeners didn't know, we did have a two-day national uprising that was called the Bread Uprising under the former President Sadat in January 1977, when he started enacting his neoliberal uh, reforms at the time. And such an uprising managed to actually shake the regime so much that the police collapsed and Sadat had to send in the army, but also had to cancel his neoliberal decrees. And, you know, four years later, he was assassinated. But the Mubarak's uh, dictatorship kept on procrastinating with these neoliberal reforms for such a long time because they were haunted by the specter of 1977. And yet on the other side, the IMF keeps pushing, (laughs) keeps pushing for austerity for the people. Oh yeah, I mean, remember before the Tunisian uprising, they were praising the the Tunisian reforms. So at least it's it's a good sign for revolutionaries like us, you know, whenever the IMF, uh, or the World Bank, you know, they praise some country, you know that 
there is a prospect of a revolution, you know, I mean, sometime soon. The price of wheat has been, as you said, a catastrophe for Egypt. Is the government subsidizing still? I mean, how are they coping with, with this crisis? I mean, on paper, they are subsidizing. In reality, it's, it's really a completely different story. And there has been huge disruptions. Instead of, let's say, taking off the subsidy and letting the people all like, you know, starve, but at the same time very angry about the prices, basically they will say there are supply shortages. So they won't put out the bread and the other basic commodities so as to avoid having the impression that we are raising the prices. And if you ask them, so where are they? Why aren't there uh, anything? They will tell you it's either the war in Ukraine and before the war in Ukraine, it was the coronavirus. There is always an excuse for this. And as for the upper and the upper middle class, they are in a totally um, different world, really. So they are feeling the pinch, but definitely not on the same level as the rest of the population. And what has been uh, Egypt's attitude, the Egyptian junta's attitude towards the war in Ukraine? They stayed in the beginning a little bit hesitant about taking a public stand because, you know, Egypt is an ally of the states. It receives roughly $1.3 billion mainly for its military. And it's a strategic partner of the American state. But at the same time, Sisi has been cultivating all of these uh, alliances with Putin's Russia, who rules in a style that is a little bit similar, you know, to the one that we have in Egypt. But after a while, and definitely under US pressure, the Egyptians have declared, I mean, their stand that they are against the war, and that actually they condemned uh, Russia. So that's where it stands. Now, when the war ends, that's if it ends anytime soon, Egypt will be always in crisis, always in crisis in terms of, on the one hand, they have lost a strategic ally, which is the Russians. And on the other hand, if the Russians come out triumphant from this war, they will not forget that the Egyptians have betrayed them. (laughs) It's a very delicate and critical situation. But yeah, I mean, the short answer is that definitely Egypt is in the U.S. slash Ukrainian camp. Unlike uh, Saudi Arabia, which has managed to stay quite neutral. But that's another story. The last question, what do you expect, if anything, good coming out of this COP27, both for Egypt and for the world in general? For Egypt, I think the good thing that happened is that the conference has managed to put Egypt once again and and the regime and its policies under the spotlight. Uh, Egypt has been away from uh, the international agenda and from uh, media coverage for such a long time. The CC and his regime have been cultivating all of these ties with Western uh, rulers and they have been getting away with so many of the crimes that they are doing in Egypt. But this time is different. I think what was planned to be a PR greenwashing event for the dictatorship 
has actually ignited international campaigns that drove so much awareness to the situation in Egypt. For example, I mean, I live here in Berlin, in case your listeners didn't know. And over the past period, I've been meeting, at least online and communicating with, many German activists who are just in their late teens, and they are part of the movement against uh, climate change. They are climate activists. And before that, Egypt for them was only pyramids and the Sphinx. But now they understand, they know even the names of some of the high-profile Egyptian activists. Like Ala Abdel Fattah, who is in, in like a serious condition right now. Yeah, he is on a hunger strike. And these activists will be carrying his posters and posters of other activists in a demonstration in front of the Egyptian embassy by the end of this week. So this is the good thing that's coming out, that there will be more international pressure on the regime in Egypt so as to release more of the hostages that Sisi is keeping in his jails. But I'm not expecting anything radically different in terms of uh, the regime's environmental policies. Someone on Twitter today was saying that the COP27 for Egypt is the World Cup of 1978 in Argentina when the junta tried to have some, you know, World Cup event that will cover its dirty war. But actually, it ignited so much international scrutiny. Uh, it backfired on them pretty badly. It backfired. <laughs> so someone, you know, I mean, on Twitter uh, was like making this comparison, you know, me to that. I was like, yeah, exactly. Hoping um, the same happens uh, in Egypt. <laughs> And you were also saying that you have more hope in the grassroots movements of putting more pressure and bringing change than these international conferences in terms of the international impact that COP27 might have. Definitely. I mean, my hope is always, I mean, I always say that, you know, our enemies in the so-called West are in the White House, are in 10 Downing Street and in the offices of, you know, the ruling class, but we have so many allies and that I have faith in, and I believe that they are my brothers and sisters, no matter what skin color they are, in this international fight in order to save the planet and to allow us to have a different world, a world that we can live free, free of hunger, and free also of fear of any political repression of any kind a place where we can feel secure and we can feel that we're living in a just system. I'm always optimistic because we cannot afford otherwise. I want to commend and I want to uh, praise all our comrades where you live in the States and elsewhere for all the solidarity that they have been giving our fellow prisoners in Egypt. And It is the same fight, comrades, so keep on supporting us. We need you. Hossam El-Hamalawi is an exiled journalist and democracy activist based in Berlin. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. Please join us next week for more discussions about the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. لو كان
العسل بالراحة مش بالريح لو كنا حوشنا العسل بليل عسل ما يسيح لو كانوا سابوا الحاجات تصبح حاجات بصحيح يا جنوبي That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>